This morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word in whatever form you have it and turn with me to the book of Revelation, last book at the very end of your Bible. Our normal practice and pattern here at San Harbor is to take a book of the Bible, start at the beginning, work our way to the end. So that's why we're in Revelation. And we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22 this morning. So Jesus has been sending letters, kind of a you've got mail section of Revelation, letters to the seven churches with encouragement and correction and rebuke and um, warnings. And we come to the last of those seven letters. And there are texts in the Bible that are um, good reminders. They're very helpful things that you needed to know that you often forget. There are texts in the Bible that are, are sweet comfort. It's like laying your head on a sweet pillow, a good promise in scripture. There are passages in the Bible that um, teach us things that we don't know. They kind of reshape our thinking. This text isn't like one of those. This text is more like being hit in the head by a two by four. Uh, It feels about that good, but it's in here and Jesus wrote it for a reason and we need to hear it. We need to understand it and we need to submit our lives to it. So without further ado, here is Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray and ask for God's help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you remind us in your word that this is the one to whom you will look. He who is contrite in heart and who is humble in spirit and who trembles beneath your word. Lord, we need to tremble beneath this text because it is weighty. It is heavy, it is uncomfortable, and so, Lord, help us to understand it rightly, to evaluate ourselves in light of it accurately, Lord, and to know the truth that sets us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most dangerous and desperate situation you have ever found yourself in before? In the scale of all the things that you've been in on your life, all the situations you've been in in your life, what is the most dangerous and desperate situation you've ever been in. Well, unless you're an adrenaline junkie who has no regard for life and limb, danger is probably something you generally try to avoid. We don't seek it out. We, we don't like it. But as much as we try to avoid danger and mitigate risk, danger and desperate situations often are something that finds us. Well, probably the most dangerous and desperate situation I've been in was when Ashley and I had to drive through a whiteout blizzard in rural North Dakota. Now, most of North Dakota is rural, but this is rural, rural North Dakota. 
And it's dangerous because it's after dark. The snow is falling heavy and thick. And the wind is so strong that it's blowing the snow sideways. And then you add to that that we're driving through open farmland on a gravel road with deep ditches on either side of the road. And the road is covered in all white. And the sky is all white. And the headlights are looking at all white. And so I did what any good husband would do. I made my wife stick her head out the window and look at the ditch and tell us if we're going to fall into it. You know, you can see about 10 feet in front of you. You can drive only under 10 miles per hour. So you need to know where is the ditch? And are we getting close to it? Or are we getting too far away from the one on that side of the car? And here's why it's dangerous. Because if you get stuck in a ditch, which often happens in a whiteout blizzard, your car loses traction, you don't see the road, it can be a while before you get help. And people get so desperate in those situations that they venture out on their own to look for help. And that's when it gets really dangerous because you often, in the whiteout, getting far enough away from your car and not knowing where you're going, you lose your sense of direction and you can't find help, nor can you get back to where you were. And many people often get left and exposed to the cold and dangerous temperatures in conditions like that. Well, thankfully, and this is when I knew I had to marry Ashley. She navigated us to safely. We made it back to your parents' house. A relationship was intact. And yet in the midst of those situations, what often makes it even worse is half of your sense of danger is all the what-if scenarios that are running through your mind. You're going through it, and what if this, what if that, are we going to make it? And it seems to intensify it. But I would argue that there is a more dangerous situation. There's a dangerous situation in which you are completely oblivious and unaware to the danger you're in. You have no clue that it's there. You don't even know the threat. It's a kind of danger that is more dangerous because your guard is down, your sense of discernment and judgment is kind of turned off, and you don't even know that you're in the midst of danger. You have no care in the world. It's like when a two-year-old finds a bag of candy-sized medicine, some of which is bright pink, and they think they've hit the jackpot of candy, not realizing that the 10 Benadryl allergy pills they just swallowed means they're in danger, and now their parents, who may or may not be named Ashley and Andrew Jacobson, (laughs) have to take them, that person, to the ER. That is a dangerous and desperate situation because they don't know the danger they're in. Well, if you were to ask Jesus, what is the most dangerous and desperate situation that a person could ever find themselves in? I think his answer would shock you. We would expect something along the lines of being in extreme physical danger or in the way of extreme physical harm. So, you know, we're in Florida. Maybe he'd say something like swimming in a pool of great white sharks with a bloody nose. That's extreme physical danger. That's not what he says. Or maybe he'd say, in modern day, trying to evangelize the Taliban in Afghanistan by telling them that Muhammad's a false prophet and that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and life. That's an extremely dangerous situation. But that's not what he says. According to Jesus, the most dangerous and desperate situation one could ever find themselves in has nothing to do with extreme physical danger at all. It's quite the opposite. Jesus would say that you are never in a more dangerous and desperate situation than when you're in the state that he describes in verse 17 of our passage. Look there with me. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is the most dangerous and desperate situation you can ever find yourself in. It is when your material and physical prosperity, the the lack of any extreme physical danger of any kind, convinces your heart that you are self-sufficient and that it blinds you to your utter spiritual bankruptcy 
That is the most dangerous and desperate situation you can ever be in. Physically prosperous and utterly spiritually impoverished and not knowing it one bit. That is a dangerous and desperate situation. And Jesus writes this letter to address a church full of believers that is in the midst of that very situation. And because it's so dangerous, because their situation is so desperate, because they're ignorant and they don't have a care in the world, he does not mince words at all. He does not waste time with pleasantries. And we've looked at seven letters to seven churches. Most of them have at least some encouragement in them. Some, just maybe a little semblance. You guys showed up today, something like that. This one has nothing. There is no encouragement in here. His words are severe. His words are sharp and they are stern. And some people probably got their feelings hurt, okay? But if you went into cardiac arrest and someone did CPR on you, did chest compressions to revive you, and in the process, they broke your rib cage, but your heart starts pumping blood and oxygen to the rest of your body, and you wake up and come to and you find out your rib cage is broken, you don't get mad at them for not being gentle enough. You thank them for doing what it took to revive you, to bring life back to your body. That's what Jesus is doing here. At times, we see and hear Jesus comforting the afflicted. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those who are burdened. But in this case, he is afflicting the comfortable. Those who think everything's great, everything grand, that God exists merely to be a butler for their pleasures and their comforts and their convenience, he is afflicting them in their comfort that they might wake up. And this might be hard for us to hear this kind of language because our culture is obsessed with speaking words that give no offense. The greatest crime you can do is hurt someone's feelings. Jesus does not agree with that sentiment. In fact, Jesus is concerned most with speaking the truth as it's needed, where it's necessary, even if it hurts, and sometimes so that it might hurt, so that the truth might set us free. That's what Jesus is concerned with. And you see this alluded to as Jesus even introduces himself to the church. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. I want to focus on that title, the faithful and true witness. This is Jesus kind of borrowing imagery from the courtroom. What he's saying is, in the cosmic courtroom of reality, when it comes to testifying to the truth in its undiluted, uncomfortable, raw state, Jesus stands out as one who reliably, unwaveringly testifies to the truth no matter what. His words never need to be fact-checked because they're always reliable. They are always infallible. You never need to wonder if what he's saying has some sort of angle, some sort of false ulterior motive. What he says is true, and the truth sets us free, even if we don't like it. And so for a church like Laodicea, who could not see themselves rightly, who was oblivious to the danger they were in, they needed someone who would speak undiluted and uncomfortable truth to them, and that's what Jesus does. Well, as Jesus begins this to address this church, the first thing he does is he states that their spiritual danger and their spiritual desperation is evidenced by their lukewarmness. The symptom, the main symptom of the fact that they're in utter spiritual danger is the fact that they are lukewarm before him. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Now, that, that's, you don't ever put that on a Christmas card. You don't ever want to have someone you know, text you in their email, Revelation 3, you know, 16. It's not something you'd see on anything like that. And yet, this is Jesus speaking to the church. And the word spit is perhaps too tame of a word. It's, this is not like a kid on the baseball field you know, spitting in left field because he's just waiting for something to happen. I think the New American Standard gets a little closer to the graphic imagery when it says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And some of you have probably the NASB. That is what Jesus is saying. It's literally to eject the contents of your stomach out your mouth. And perhaps, kids, you have a food or a beverage that makes you feel like that often, right? You have a food or beverage that you find so disgusting that if you were to eat it or drink it, your gag reflex would, would be triggered. Your, your nausea would start to set in and the first law of disgustingness would set in. What goes down will not stay down. It will come up and out. For me, it's cottage cheese and tomato juice. I am convinced that Satan has put those in to torment our taste buds. They're disgusting, it's wrong, it's sinful, all the things. I I gag thinking about them right now, writing this, I gagged. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is for you, the disgust you have over whatever that food or beverage item is, does not compare with the disgust that Jesus has for lukewarm professing Christianity. To be as graphic as the text, the sight of a lukewarm professing Christian or church makes Jesus want to vomit. And that probably doesn't sit well with us because we think, you know, isn't it just kind of generally nice and like we talked about in Sunday school, a senile benevolent grandfather who just kind of wants to make us feel it? That's not true. And we get a sense of this. Think about it. What is one of the greatest charge, charges against the church that is brought up by those outside or those who used to be in who have gone on the outside? The church is full of what? Hypocrites, right? Sometimes that's just an excuse. So you don't have to own up to responsibility to what the scriptures say. Sometimes that's true, right? There are situations and circumstances where you've probably been in the church where people did not act Christ-like. They've acted quite contrary to it. And it had ramifications for other people in the church who have now left. And it doesn't it make you want to, does it make you sick when you see that? It doesn't even compare to how it makes Jesus feel when he sees that in the church. A lukewarm Christianity is neither refreshingly cold nor soothingly hot. And this is what Jesus alludes to in verse 15. He says, wish that you were cold or hot. No, he doesn't mean, I wish that you either didn't care and just were, you know, just lived whatever life you wanted to, or that you were zealous. That's not what he means. You see, the city of Laodicea, very affluent city, but it did not have its own water supply. So what it had to do is it had to pipe in cold water from Colossae, about six miles away, and it had to pipe in hot water from Hierapolis, about 10 miles away from the hot springs in Hierapolis. But each of these places was far enough away that by the time the water, either cold or hot, got to Laodicea, guess what? It was lukewarm. It was neither that refreshing cold that you want on this hot summer day, nor was it that soothingly hot that you want when your joints are sore and you sit in a hot tub or soak in a hot bath. And not only had it lost its temperature value, but along the way through that piping system, it picked up all sorts of nasty sediment and residue that was sitting in the bottom of the cup. So I don't know if you've ever shared a, a beverage with a three-year-old who's eating bread, but if you ever have, you know what residue looks like as it sits and floats around 
and you really question your life choices of drinking it at that point. That's the kind of cup of water that Jesus is speaking about being held out to. A lukewarm cup full of sediment and residue. That's disgusting. It has none of the temperature that anyone would want and has everything inside of it that someone finds disgusting. And here's where this gets very uncomfortable. I cannot just leave this in the abstract. It'd be nice if we just kind of study, oh, what is lukewarm and how did the piping system of water look like in Laodicea? We have to apply this passage to our own hearts and lives. I have to hold it up as a mirror before us so that we can honestly examine ourselves. The Bible can never be dealt with in the abstract. It has to come home to our own hearts. We don't sit over it to evaluate it. We sit under it to be evaluated by it. We read the word, but we also need to let the word read us. So are you in the spiritually dangerous and desperate situation of being lukewarm? Is Christianity something you do only at your convenience? If I'm not busy with my hobbies or my sports or my other activities that I care about most, then I'll give some thought and time to Jesus. But other than that, too busy. If that's the case, you may be lukewarm. Is your faith and Christian walk marked by a general pattern of apathy and indifference? I hear the word, but I don't care enough to do something about what I've heard. I'm just here because I have to be. I just go through the motions because I know I'm supposed to, but my heart has never been in it. I'm just here because I want some of the benefits that Christianity can give me, but I'm not interested in any of the demands that Christianity makes of me. If that's you, you may be in the dangerous situation of being lukewarm. Or is your Christianity marked by hypocrisy or shifting and changing like a chameleon? It is a true mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but at home, always in public but never in private. Or, like a chameleon, if you're around Christians, you're a Christian, but if you're not, then you're not. That is a dangerous, lukewarm place to be. Is your view of Christ overwhelmingly characterized by an unenthusiastic non-commitment? You know, I'm glad Jesus is there if I'm in a pinch, but other than that, I got things under control. I know I'm supposed to conform to his character, but I'm not ready to give up this or that yet. I know that he says true joy and satisfaction can be found in him alone, but there's still some other sources that I want to check out just to see if he's lying. If that's the case, you may be in the dangerous state of lukewarmness. There are times when we need to do a honest, thorough spiritual health check by evaluating ourselves in the light of God's word and under the scrutiny of his truth. It's not comfortable. I hate going to the dentist just as much as anyone, but I do like healthy teeth. I do not want to go for an annual physical, but I do want to know that I'm not, there's not some undetected tumor or something. We care about our physical bodies, but do we give as much attention to our, the spiritual state of our souls? We check our bank accounts. We look at our financial health, but do we look at our own heart as much as we care about our financial portfolios? Now, I don't want to make you a spiritual hypochondriac that obsesses over their spiritual health, is always looking and down at themselves and evaluating themselves internally, never looking up to Christ. That's not healthy. Do not be a spiritual hypochondriac. On the other hand, I don't want you to be spiritually self-deceived because you skip over your doctor visits thinking, I feel fine, everything's great, when in reality, it's, it's not. So I, David, pray, search me, O God, and know my heart and reveal to me if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
That is a prayer that we do need to pray and honestly submit to. As we move on in the passage, we see that Jesus not only points out the symptom of their spiritual danger, he also points out the primary cause. He points out how they contracted the serious disease of lukewarmness. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That phrase, I need nothing, really gets at the heart of how they contracted this spiritual dangerous disease of lukewarmness. Now, when he says, I need nothing, Jesus isn't speaking about a contentment. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a good thing. The contentment in whatever state or situation God's placed you in is a good thing. But I need nothing in the sense of, I don't need to depend on God. I have everything I need. I can take care of myself. If I needed a helping hand, all I would need to do is look to the end of my own arm. That's a dangerous situation. That is self-sufficiency. It is very dangerous. Well, Laodicea may have lacked quality water, but they did not lack a thriving economy. They were known for their wealth, and they had a thriving banking industry. In fact, there was an earthquake that came through that kind of disheveled the area. And from the resources they had financially, they rebuilt it. They did not need to rely on Rome at all for it. They were so wealthy. And they had an abundance of textile resources, and so they were known for their clothing industry, beautiful clothing. In addition to that, they had a reputable medical center, which was known for its effective eye cell treatment in that time and that place. So think of Laodicea as the, the place that housed the headquarters of Chase Bank, Lilly Pulitzer, and John Hopkins Medical Center. They had, they had it all there. They had the triple crown of prosperity. They had a bank full of money, they had closets full of clothes, and they had a body full of health. What more could one ask for? And yet all this material, physical prosperity led them to have a heart full of pride and self-sufficiency, which made them utterly spiritually bankrupt and in a very dangerous and desperate situation. So they look at their bank accounts, they look at their closets full of clothes, they look at their great bill of health, and they conclude, I need nothing, and I need to rely on nobody. I have everything I need right here. It was their material prosperity which had, in a sense, lowered their spiritual immune system and caused them to contract this very deadly disease of self-sufficiency. And that brought about spiritual lukewarmness and spiritual bankruptcy. What's so interesting about this letter is in, in almost every other letter Jesus has addressed the church, there is some threat that they're facing that he's trying to help them deal with. Most of the time, it's persecution, that there's the, the uh, political powers that be the other religious authorities that be, or the kind of economic situations that are at play that are persecuting them and threatening them from the outside. But here, the danger is prosperity. It's not persecution. It's not adversity. It's not some physical threat. It is prosperity. It's having all the material, physical resources you could ever want. And he says, this is the danger you're facing. Wake up to it. And one could argue that in a sense, prosperity is a far more dangerous temptation than adversity or persecution. Why? Because prosperity 
can work on our hearts in a subtle, undetectable, slow, and dangerous way where we don't even know that the harm is setting in. Prosperity can work on our hearts like a slow-releasing anesthesia. It's subtle. It's almost undetectable. It feels pleasant and comfortable. You're laughing, having a good time, and you don't even realize that your spiritual pulse is slowing down to a dangerous pace. You don't realize that your affections for Christ are growing numb. You don't realize that a spiritual sleepiness is coming upon you. You see C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's kind of the idea of, he has this um, uh, devil who's trying to tempt this patient. He's teaching this underling, how do you tempt a Christian? And the underling asks him, wouldn't it be better if we, if we kind of threw adversity their way, threw some persecution or some harm their way? And he said, no, no, no. Prosperity is always the best method of temptation. And he said it like this. Prosperity knits a man to the world unlike anything else. A man feels that he is finding his place in the world, while really, through his prosperity, the world is finding its place in him, making its home in his heart without even knowing it. It is subtle and it's dangerous. Now, a major clarification is needed here. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not rebuking them merely because they're materially prosperous and in good physical health. He does not wear a t-shirt that says tax the rich. He does not read the Communist Manifesto at nighttime before he goes to bed. That's not what he's doing here. This is not an economic statement. Because in the Bible, economic status is no indicator of spiritual standing. Your bank account does not determine your lack of or abundance of God's blessing. It is not an indicator of that. Because in the Bible as in life, there are godly rich people and there are ungodly poor people, and the reverse is true as well. When the scriptures speak to wealth, prosperity, physical health, it always speaks about it as a blessing that needs to be stewarded in gratitude for God in the right way, to be used generously, to be carefully managed and appropriately overseen, but never to be hoped in and trusted in and rested in. That's how the Bible speaks about material prosperity. Their sin is not the sin of material prosperity. Their sin is when material prosperity mixes with the indwelling sin tendencies of self-sufficiency and that self-sufficiency latches on and grabs hold of that material prosperity and says, I need nothing. This is what I've longed for and hoped for. Material prosperity mixed with indwelling sin is, is a dangerous cocktail that we need to be aware of. So here are some of the temptations with prosperity that we need to guard against. In prosperity, we can easily be led to self-sufficiency. I need nothing. So don't forget that you are still, day by day, moment by moment, absolutely dependent on God for life and breath and everything. Every breath of oxygen that sustained your brain, that sustained your body to even gain that wealth was given to you by someone else. There are so many things in life that remind us that we are absolutely and utterly dependent on someone outside of us to sustain us. Every day you need to eat food because you need to be sustained. You're not self-sufficient. Every day you need to sleep because you're not self-sufficient. Every day you need water because you're not self-sufficient. That is God saying through creation, you need me. You are dependent on me moment by moment. In our prosperity, we can be tempted to ingratitude. Look what I've done for myself. Don't forget that all praise and thanks goes to God who richly provides us with everything that we might enjoy to his glory and to our good. Prosperity is not inherently sinful. In fact, at times in the Bible, it is described as a blessing. God gives us good gifts. He's not a stingy heavenly father. 
He gives us good gifts, but we need to acknowledge him and praise him and thank him. And constant gratitude for his gifts is one of the best ways to protect against making his gifts a God. Because it reminds us that he is the giver. And the gift is not him. Another danger in prosperity is that we can easily set our hope in our riches. Timothy tells, or Paul tells Timothy later, he said, charge the rich who are rich in this present age not to set their hope on riches. Because the ultimate security that everyone is looking for is not found in those things. They, they make wings and they fly away quickly. Either they will leave you or you will leave them. That's what always happens with your wealth. Your ultimate security and hope rests in the fact that nothing can separate those who are in Christ Jesus from the love of God. That is ultimate security and ultimate hope. Set your hope in that. In your prosperity, know that there's a temptation to a Scrooge-like stinginess and selfishness. Ever read A Christmas Carol? You know what Scrooge is like, that he's, he's miserly, he's stingy, he's always counting his pennies and he has plenty of it, but he doesn't want to give any of it away because he, he loves it. He has to have it. it. It gives him his identity, his security, his hope. Or if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you know what Gollum is like. That, that, that ring is his wealth and it's his precious and he cannot live without it. So in your prosperity, don't forget that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. That we worship a Savior who gave himself up for us so that we might have all things that we need. And we should reflect that a giving Savior should have giving disciples. So dependence and gratitude and hoping in God and generosity, those are the ingredients that go into making up the antidote to a spiritual self-sufficiency that comes from prosperity. That is what we need. And the irony of an I have everything, so I need nothing frame of heart is that you are never more spiritually bankrupt and impoverished than when you are in that position. The irony is when you look at your material prosperity and think I have everything, I need nothing, you are never in more of a spiritually impoverished, bankrupt state than when you're in that position. And so Jesus is gonna give us some financial counsel for how to get out of spiritual bankruptcy. Look at verse 18 with me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus says, you need, you need to make a shopping list and you need to put three items on there. First item, you need to get true riches. Gold refined by fire. That wealth that can truly last. And he, notice where he says this comes from. I counsel you to buy from me. There's only one source where you can get all of these things. True riches, riches that will last for eternity. Not the temporary earthly wealth that either will leave us or we will leave it, but true riches. The riches of forgiveness. The riches of justification, knowing that our sins are all forgiven. The riches of adoption in Christ. The riches of eternal fellowship with God. They are found only when we know the pearl of great price. The treasure hidden in a field which is worth selling everything to get because in that treasure is every single eternal spiritual blessing. That's what we need to buy. Then he says, buy white, pure garments which provide a covering for our guilt and shame. The most beautiful garment in the universe is the one that Christ knit together with the purity and obedience and perfection of his own earthly life. That he came to fulfill all righteousness, to live the life that we could never live, to submit to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could weave together a brilliantly white, beautiful, pure garment so that you could be clothed, so that your shame and guilt would be hidden and covered forever. 
so that when you put on the garment of salvation, the father would look at you and see the purity and perfection of his own son and say, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. We need that kind of garment. And finally, Jesus counsels us to buy true ointment for our eyes so that we can actually see clearly. The irony of this is they lived in this place that had this eye cell that was famous in this medical community. And yet, they're blind. They cannot see. Because we need the word of Christ, which gives us a spiritual LASIK surgery and helps us see clearly so that we can look at the world rightly, so that we can know what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is valuable, that we can weigh eternity in the balance and understand how it compares to this temporary earthly life that we live so that we can see what is really worth living for. The word of Christ helps us see because it shatters all of the carnival mirrors and mirages in this world that we often get duped and fooled by. And it helps us see in a mirror rightly. And it gives us the truth and the truth sets us free. But here's another irony. To get these items that Jesus told us to buy on the shopping list he just gave us, we have to admit that we need them. And then we have to admit that we cannot afford them. To get these items, you have to first admit that you do need them. And then you have to admit that you cannot afford them one bit. And this is one of the wonders of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel is that it first humbles you to your knees and then it lifts you up to heaven. It humbles you because it shows you that you cannot afford the things you desperately need. In fact, it shows you that you are an utter spiritual debt, a debt that is unpayable that you will never be able to climb out of. You need true wealth. You need a righteous garment. You need a new set of eyes because you have all the opposite of those things. And in your pride and your apathy and your self-sufficiency and your lukewarmness, you have such a debt that all you can say is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. The, The gospel is in one sense offensive because it tells you that the only thing that you added to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's humbling. But then the gospel lifts you up to heaven because it tells you the very things that you need, which you cannot afford, are freely handed to you through the sacrificial generosity of Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And it's something that material prosperity will never be able to touch or hold a candle to. Jesus was charged with guilt and put to open shame and stripped of all his earthly goods so that he could provide you with a white garment that would cover your shame and guilt. Jesus closed his eyes in death and he breathed his last breath so that your eyes could be opened in spiritual life and you could have new creation life. Jesus faced the burning hot fury of the wrath of God for you and then was laid in a cold dark tomb so that you could be forgiven of your lukewarmness. Jesus reproves us with such strong and stern language for one reason. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. We would think that if he loved us, it meant he'd say nice, soft, easy, comfortable things to us. That's not how it works. Love and discipline are not enemies, they are friends. Okay, I remember my parents always telling me when they discipline me, I do this because I love you and it's going to hurt me more than it hurt you. And I said, you're such a liar. And then I became a parent and I realized they were telling the truth. 
The opposite of love is not discipline. It's indifference. It's not caring. Just letting them go off and do whatever they want. Christ does not leave us to our own devices because he loves us. He's not there just to kind of encourage and affirm whatever we do because he loves us. He wants to lead us in the truth and he wants the truth to set us free. We may be indifferent and apathetic towards him, but he does not return the favor. And thank God he does not. Instead, he pursues us. He comes after us. Look at verse 20. It said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The imagery here is in our indifference, in our kind of self-sufficient pride, it's as if we've kind of pushed Christ out the front door. We kind of resigned him to the front porch and said, you know, I don't need you in here. I'm just going to kind of do my house the way I want to. And Jesus won't leave. He pursues. He's persistent. So he keeps knocking at the door in his gracious determination. He says, you're not going to get rid of me that easily. I'm here. Open the door. I offer fellowship, feasting, joy beyond anything that this world can provide. And so I'm here and I'm not going to let you go that easily. The greatest danger of a lukewarm self-sufficiency is that it keeps us from enjoying the riches and everlasting satisfaction that come from knowing Christ, from having fellowship with Christ. That is the greatest danger of lukewarm self-sufficiency. It makes us fall in love with the mirage of the false joys of this world. It makes us miss the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. And Jesus is here to burst that mirage, knock on the door, kick it down, and say, fellowship with me is where true riches, true joy is found. And that is something we cannot afford to miss out on. Let's pray. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to speak hard, uncomfortable words. Lord, we pray that where we've needed to be pricked and cut and wounded, that you would also heal us, Lord. That we would see our sin rightly and run to our Savior quickly. Lord, we thank you that you draw us to yourself and that you discipline those whom you love. Help us to be zealous and repent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing, would you please turn to the bottom of page 8 in your bulletin? We have a responsive conclusion. We've been going through Revelation. We take the ending of Revelation to remind ourselves what we're looking forward to as believers. So the responsive conclusion on the bottom of page 8, I'll read the words in italics. Would you respond corporately with the words there in bold? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Well, let's turn and let's sing in response to this word. Page 9, let's stand together. Be thou my vision.